0: Well, this morning's sermon is quite a bit different from what you guys are used to in this pulpit. Uh, Our normal practice here, which we believe to be the best healthy practice, although not the only faithful practice for preaching, uh, is to focus a sermon on one text, and the guy up here, his job is to tell you what that text of the Bible, that paragraph or so of the Bible means, and then apply it to your life. What does this mean? What do I need to do about it? That's usually the job of this guy who is here. On occasion, we deviate from that for different reasons, uh, and this morning is one of those occasions. Uh, The reason we're doing that this morning is to follow along with the tradition of men of God throughout all of the ages who have arisen with the difficult job of confronting even sin on a national level. What I mean is that at times through history, groups of people have erred from God's ways in very particular ways, kind of going together. And when they do, the Lord raises up preachers to call them back. This is the case with Enoch, the seventh from Adam, who rose up and called people back before the flood. And it was the case with Lot, who tried to call Sodom and Gomorrah back, and the case with Israel's prophets, and with John the Baptist, and with many others. Uh, So this morning, we take a break from our normal pattern. And instead, we're going to focus on one great national sin that plagues our nation and ask the question, what should I do about it as an ordinary Christian? Uh, that national sin we're going to talk about this morning is, is abortion. It is the, the legalized and often government funded killing of children in the womb, uh, one of the heaviest things that you can talk about on a Sunday morning. Uh, as we broach that subject, I wonder how your heart immediately reacted to it, right? There are so many different and polarized reactions to the word abortion here in our land. And so I wonder if some of you, as soon as you learned that was what the sermon was about this morning, knew, ooh, this is going to be a hard one for me, because for some of us, abortion is part of our stories. It must have been part of it, right? Uh, And if that's you and you're thinking, oh, did I have to come on the week that it was about this thing that I either regret so much or don't think is very much of a big deal? uh, I just want you to know my desires and prayers for you are that talking about it this morning and looking at it in the scriptures. Would be for you something that wraps up some of those, uh, some of that, that lingering tension and emotion still over the issue. For many women and men who have been part of this in the past, there is grieving that continues on for decades. There is a lingering sense of guilt. Uh, and the Lord means to, to help you in that. And I pray these words will do that for you. Others of you would say, well, you know. I disagree with you about this, and, and we would not be eye to eye on this issue. And if that's you, what I want to ask of you is that you, with me, would, that we would both submit ourselves to whatever this book says. Or if the book corrects me, then I'm wrong and I come to it. If the book corrects you, then then look to the book and hold the book higher than your own heart. And finally, there may be some of you who this morning are thinking, finally, we, we, were, we were a church for a full decade before abortion was illegal and have been a church for this whole time. And I don't think it's ever been addressed in the pulpit before. So there may be some of you who are saying, man, it's about time, finally. Uh, And if that's you, what I want to encourage you to do is ask along with me the question of the title of the sermon, what can I do as an ordinary Christian. It's not enough just to rejoice that what you believe is heard in the pulpit. We also must respond. So look with me at what we can do. Uh, So I'm going to divide this into two sections this morning. The first one a little shorter. We'll just ask the question, uh, is this issue indeed a great national sin that we have to deal with and reckon with? Is, Is it such a big deal that it's right for me to devote a whole sermon to it on Sunday morning? And then the second question with a longer answer would be, okay, well what can I do about it? What does God call the church to do? And we'll try to answer both of those this morning. So let's dive into the first one. Is abortion indeed a great national injustice? At the core of that question is another question. And that question is, uh, what is it that is inside a pregnant woman? Is, Is it part of her body, just another organ that's developing there and will eventually become a human? Or is it an entirely different person altogether? How you answer that question determines how you're going to feel about everything else. Uh, And at one point, that question was actually asked to a leading presidential candidate who later became president. It was asked to President Obama while he was campaigning. Uh, Rick Warren asked him, uh, is, is whatever's inside a pregnant woman a human and worthy of the protection of the United States Constitution? And his answer was, well, that question is above my pay grade. Uh, that, that was how he answered that. And uh, what I want to tell you this morning is, on that answer alone, I actually agree with him, and I think that's how we ought to look at it too, right? Well, I, whatever I think about what it is doesn't really matter, right? And why is that the case? Well, because I never gave life to anybody, right? I didn't create humanity. And so my opinion on whatever that is inside a pregnant woman really is of no consequence. What matters is what does the Lord think it is? What does the creator and author of life call that life in the womb? And that means that all of the medical evidence matters, and I think it does land squarely on one side, but what matters even more is what God has told us in his word. So we look this morning then to an answer to that question in the word. How does the Bible talk about pregnant women and their children? Does it speak of them as if whatever is in there was part of her body or does it speak of them as if it were a separate person? That's the way to answer that question. So putting ourselves under God's word like that, we find first perhaps in Psalm 139 and in Psalm 51, uh, King David talking about his own body before he was formed in the womb. Uh, He actually talks about his unborn body when his mother was pregnant from him. You're not going to find this one in the handout if you're looking for it there. I see a few of you looking there. Uh, In Psalm 139, he says, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Uh, And he refers to that body as me, right? Himself. He says, That was me in there. It wasn't a part of my mom's body, it was me. Uh, Then in Psalm 51, he says, even rather boldly, In sin I was conceived. Uh, So, once again, right at the moment of conception, he's referring to whatever that was as himself. It was already him, even when it was a little, you know, two-cell size. Not only already him, but already a sinner before God. So, already with moral agency and already under God's authority as a soul before him and accountable to God. We see similar things in the book of Genesis when Rebecca is pregnant with twins and she feels just all kinds of chaos going on in there. She cries out, says, why is it like this? And the way the author describes it is the children in her womb strove within her. So those two twins in her womb were not organs or things, they were were children. They were the children who would later be named Jacob and Esau. And interestingly, they are fighting and striving in the womb, which if you know the story well, you know is what they do for their whole lives, right? Not only are they called children, but they're already being themselves and already acting like themselves and doing what they will later do. It's as if their personalities and character are already in there. Once again, the Bible treated them like they are people. Uh, But perhaps the clearest example comes from Luke 1, 39 to 45. You'll find this one in your handouts here. We could call this example the clearest because Luke was a medical doctor. He was a physician by trade, and he tends to use very precise medical terms. He would not play it loose with the words he would use for legs and arms and eyes and things like that. Well, Luke speaks of Mary when she is pregnant with Jesus and Elizabeth when she is pregnant with Zechariah. And here's what she says. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit Twice, you have unborn John referred to as a baby, right? And when he acts, he acts consistent with his character and his ministry later on. He would become the one who prepares the way for Jesus, the one who waits for Jesus. And when Jesus finally comes, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as if he were jumping for joy. And here he is already acting like that. Jesus comes near to him, and he jumps for joy in the womb. Now, the reason he jumped for joy was because who came near to him? Jesus did, right? And so what is it that's inside Mary's womb? Is it part of Mary's body, or is it another person? It's Jesus. So, yeah, four characters in this story, Mary and Elizabeth, Jesus, and John. And those two babies are babies. They are people, so from these and several other references like this, uh, we can say with confidence what it is that's inside a pregnant woman's womb is another person, a human being, and if a human being, then made by God. And so the question we ask next then is, okay, how important are human beings to God? Right? Is that a big deal to him, to the one who made them? And that is when we look at Genesis one twenty-six, the first scripture that's in your handouts this morning. What is humanity? Well, what did God say when he made us? This is what we are. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So what we are is a creature made by God that resembles God in very particular and special ways who have been given the task of ruling all the other creatures in the world. That's why we've got power over lots of animals and can build houses and do all sorts of things in the world. So these little children that are made in the womb there, what they are is little pictures of God made in the image of God who have a destiny to help rule our Lord's planet, designed even there in the womb to rule this earth, which means in God's eyes, these little children have Royal status. Future rulers in the kingdom of God, rulers over all of the animals and all of the plants and all of the soil. That is what God has designed them to be. And so, with every one of them that is lost, with every miscarriage that is suffered, that we mourn and weep, we're, we're mourning the death of royalty. And with every abortion that occurs, we're mourning the death and even the killing of, in God's eyes, royalty, highly valuable. And precious to him. So we add this up together, and we have no choice but to admit that to take an unborn baby out of the womb and to take its life is the bloodshed of an innocent human, precious to God and made in his image. When we take that and we multiply it by 63 million over 49 years, we are looking at perhaps America's greatest national sin when it comes to scale at least, 63 million. To put that into perspective, uh, we still, thank God, have museums and, uh, and you can go and visit the concentration camps from the Nazi Holocaust almost a century ago now. Can you believe we're coming up on that in a few decades? It's good that we can go and visit those and see the horror and say, oh, this was terrible. Never again, we should say. And we should continue to mourn what happened there. When six million Jews and five million other people were put to death simply because of qualities that they had. Uh, That adds up to 11 million people, and that is worth mourning for over and over again. And the scary thing is that it's just a little more than one-sixth of the American Holocaust that has taken place, with 63 million children's lives taken from them. If we can see it on that scale, I think we have no choice but to say This must be our largest and most egregious sin together. Not that some sins are worse than others or that the issues you care about aren't important. There are many important issues, but few of them have touched this many lives and have happened on this kind of a scale. And so we look at it and we say, God, what do we do? What's the right thing for an American to do in response to that? What's there I thing for a Christian to do in response to that? What do I do if I was part of it? Can I come back and can I be one with the Lord again? Or what if I wasn't part of it, but I know I'm part of our country? Is there anything I need to do in response? And that's the second question we ask. What should an ordinary Christian do? Uh, the greatest commands that the Lord gives us are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love of God and love of neighbor. And we'll take our answer in that order this morning. I want to give you four things that I think every Christian is called to do in response to the abortion issue today, starting with ways to repair our relationship with God and then moving to love of neighbor toward the end. Uh, The first thing the Lord calls of us is confession and repentance. Uh, for both personal and national sin, if, if you've been involved in it in any way, the Lord invites you back and the path through is confession and repentance. And as the people of God, I'll explain in a few moments, we have the role of going before God and saying, Lord, there has been bloodshed in our land, would you have mercy on our land? So at a personal and national level, confession and repentance is the first thing the Lord calls from us. This is true for those who have been party in an abortion before. And I said earlier uh, that if that's part of your story, uh, my prayer for you is that talking about it this morning would bring great closure to, or at least bring you toward closure to some of the emotional effects that linger on after that happens in a man's life or in a woman's life. Uh, when I talk to people who have this as part of their story, uh, a lot of them will say that it takes a long time sometimes for the emotional effects of that trauma to rear their head. For, many of them will say for, for five years, for 10 years, I didn't think it was a big deal and it just hit me all of a sudden. And maybe that's happened for you as well. Uh, one of the most difficult aspects of it is there can be a lingering sense of, of guilt As if the voice just won't go away that just says, guilty, guilty. Even so much that someone can preach the grace and forgiveness of the gospel of Jesus, but all the heart hears is guilty, guilty. Uh, Even so much that one can turn and come to Jesus Christ and have confidence that they are forgiven and yet still have all those feelings of guilt lingering on in them. Meanwhile, one side of our nation is telling you that it wasn't a big deal and you shouldn't even care about it, and the other side of our nation is speaking often with such condemning rhetoric that it brings out all of those emotions, you're not sure what to think, and it can just become this big cloud of emotional confusion. And one of the things that confession and repentance can do is begin to close that for you, Uh, begin to settle some of those emotions. Uh, What I mean is simply looking with difficulty at what you've done, looking to God and saying, Lord, I did this, and I agree with you that it was a big deal. And then finding that he loves you just the same as he loved you five minutes ago, that can be freeing, right? And then that visible turning from that can be so freeing. Uh, I just want to share one truth with you from the scriptures, uh, if that's part of your story. Uh, sometimes that voice of guilt can just follow you around, uh, almost like it must have followed Cain around, that voice that the Lord says, uh, the blood of your brother is crying up from the ground, and I have heard It's like this voice that will not stop. And it can even make one ask, why would the Lord forgive me? something so egregious, right? With what I've done, would God forgive me? On what grounds would he offer forgiveness for something so great, you might wonder? And the answer is that our Lord offers forgiveness through the blood of another innocent person, even a fully sinless person who lived a full and good, healthy life and never sinned against God or any person, and yet, offered his blood and shed his blood freely and even says the night before he's given up, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Why would the Lord forgive your sin? Because there is another whose blood is even more valuable that was shed voluntarily on your behalf to offer you full forgiveness for your sins. That is why it is so important what the book of Hebrews says. At the bottom of page 8, you can see Hebrews twelve twenty four. Now, remember, in the book of Genesis, the blood of Abel was crying up from the ground and the Lord heard it. But what do we hear about Jesus' blood? Let's read this. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How horrifying for Cain to hear the Lord's voice say, what have you done? The voice of your brother's brother's blood is crying up to me from the ground. But what great relief to hear the better word of the blood of Jesus Christ, which shouts it down and says, forgiven, paid for forever. Forever. This is the benefit that all can have who come to Jesus Christ. Whether this sin is in your past or some other sins in your past, all can come and through the shed blood of Jesus, hear the better word pronounced over them, the word forgiven. So my call to you is place your hope, your faith in Jesus Christ. For many of us, we have placed our faith in Christ and the feeling of guilt lingers on. And helping to bring closure to that is one thing that true and honest confession before God can do. Every time you feel that voice of guilt come up, just look to the Lord and tell him what you've done and feel his forgiveness wash over you. This can bring such great closure. It can also, if you can open up to the Lord and be honest about it, it can also help you with another area where you may need some closure, which is just simply grieving. Um, When parents have to suffer the loss of a young child, say the child is two or three, it's a great loss but there's a funeral and there is all of the stuff that we have designed to help people through the grieving process and to help us have closure at the end of it yet when a woman goes through an abortion hardly ever is there any of that right half the country is telling her she shouldn't worry about it and the other half is speaking with a voice of condemnation never is there that space to simply grieve the death of one's child I think he would be eight nine he would be 15 today well, confession of sin can help you look to the Lord, be honest about what has happened, and even begin to grieve for these things. So much more I could say here, and uh, if this is part of your past, I hope that we get to talk about that one-on-one at some point. But at least know the blood of Jesus covers every last sin. The answer is confession and repentance. So there's what we must do if we've personally been part of it. All right? that, that's how to, how to handle the personal sin. What about as our nation, right? If if you call yourself an American, if you are an American, as almost everyone here is, what do we do about that staggering and fearful number, 63 million? And the frightening truth is that throughout Scripture, the Lord does deal with nations according to their national sin. Not just Israel, but all nations. There are points where he raises up prophets to go and to preach to them, prophets like Enoch and Lot, and uh, at one point the prophet Joel rises up and speaks to Egypt and Moab, and we have his words here in Joel 3.19 at the top of page 9. He is looking to other nations, this is not to Israel, and he says, "'Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness.'" For the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. This is one of many texts like this where a prophet of God speaks of destruction coming to another nation because of a national sin that they have committed. And this is often how God deals with nations over the course of generations in time. It has been two generations now, 49 years, and we look back on this long past. And I wonder if you fear along with me, what could happen to our nation because of this continued sin? Is it too late to turn back? What do we do about it? Well, the Lord raises up these prophets and preachers to give them hope, actually. Uh, One of them is Jonah. Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh the, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and he preaches to them, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown because of their collective sin against God. And you know what the king of Nineveh does? He, he weeps and repents and calls the whole nation to repent. And the Lord says, well, I'll relent. He, he spares them because the nation repented. There's also hope in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah as well. Abraham is talking to the Lord And the Lord tells him, if I find 10 righteous people in that city, I won't destroy it. Now, why would he say that? A whole city for 10 people, why would he do that? Well, because there is power in a remnant who come faithfully to God and say, God, this sin is in our land. Would you have mercy on us anyhow? And I think if a group this size, even on a very down Sunday because of this pandemic we're going through like this, can come together before God and say, Lord, this bloodshed is in our land. Would you have mercy on our nation anyhow? If we can do this before the Lord, there is great hope for the future of our nation. This has been a tradition actually for many churches like ours throughout these 49 years. Many will do that very thing today. And we actually plan to do this at the end of our worship service. But don't discount the power of your prayers though. Uh, There is an evening in the book of Daniel where he is praying before the Lord and he said, I was confessing my sins and the sins of my fathers to the Lord, right? And the Lord has favor on those who are willing to take solidarity with their nation and say, Lord, would you forgive us? We have sinned as a nation against you. We'll do that at the end of the service today. That's the first thing that the Lord calls us to do in the scriptures. Confess and repent of our personal sin and of our nation's sin as well. The second is shorter. The second is simply to pray for our government leaders. Uh, We see two texts about this in our handout this morning. First, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. You'll find that on page 9. Very clear command here. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So two very simple commands here. One, live a peaceful life, right? That matters if you decide to go and join a protest. It needs to be a peaceful protest if you do that for any issue. Uh, More to the point here, though, first of all, pray for our nation's rulers and leaders, So what should we pray for? What should we ask for President Biden, for the Supreme Court justices, for the congressmen, for our state officials here, uh, some of which I got to even meet with this week and I can tell you they're doing good work. They're working hard there. Well, Proverbs 21.1 gives us an answer that's just above 1 Timothy. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. That means the Lord has the power to change any world leader's heart about any issue whenever he wants to. He can take that stream of water and say, going this way now. It is not too far to pray that our Lord would change our president's heart on the issue of abortion. He's on record saying it's morally wrong, but I can't force my opinions on others, so it should be legal and government should support it. But the Lord, anytime he wants to, can take that stream and turn it the opposite direction, just like he did for the king of Nineveh. And how beautiful would it be if our president were the one to lead the whole nation in repentance? What if he got up and he said, I have changed my heart on this issue. We must stop and we must turn together as a nation. What if he could lead the Democratic Party to turn their position on that one issue? The Lord is capable of doing things like that. Uh, This summer, we'll learn whether Roe Wade will be overturned or partially overturned. We could be in a very different scenario after the Supreme Court announces their verdict on a very high-profile case that is going on. It is not too far to pray that the Lord would overturn that and begin to mend the wound that is across our land. Our king's hearts, our senator's hearts, our Supreme Court justice's hearts, our president's heart, is just a stream of water in God's hand. And he can turn it to the left or to the right or right down the middle whenever he wants to. So pray for those who are in authority. That's the second thing we can do. Third thing the Lord calls us to do is when we are given political power, use it to protect pregnant women and their children. Now, Christians should never be known as a people who are hungry for political power. And there's been great shame brought on the church because Christians on both sides of the political aisle in the last several decades have reached for so much power and ranted when we have not gotten it. Great shame on the church because of this. But sometimes the Lord raises Christians into power. In our nation, everybody gets one vote, and that's power that we all have, right? And several other rights that are given to us. When the Lord gives us power, how should we use that power? We should use it to protect the vulnerable, especially pregnant women and their children. Uh, Israel's law is actually a model for this. I know uh, most of us don't spend our spare time reading Leviticus of all of the books of the Bible. But if you dig in there, one thing you'll notice is that uh, the penalty for accidentally harming an adult man is very different from the penalty for accidentally harming a pregnant woman or her children. Uh, If you are out in the woods with your friend and the axe head slips and you accidentally kill your friend, maybe you've been a little careless in the process, maybe not, all you have to do is go flee to a city of refuge and the family members of the person who died cannot come there and hurt you and you just kind of have to live your life in exile. That's the penalty in Israel's law for accidentally killing a grown man. On the other hand, in Exodus 21, we read that if two men are quarreling or horsing around and they accidentally hurt a pregnant woman and the children come out, it says, uh, the penalty for that, it says, is harm for harm. If you're horsing around and you accidentally kill the baby, it's the death penalty. If you're horsing around and you wind up elbowing a pregnant woman in the belly and the baby comes out with a broken arm, your arm's broke. Now, that may sound harsh to us, but what's the point? The point is, Israel's law protected more strictly and more zealously the lives of pregnant women and their children than it even did grown men. Who were the most valuable ones? Who did they protect the most fiercely in ancient Israel? Well, in God's law, it was pregnant mothers and their children. And that's a model for us, that principle we can pull as well into our laws. Who should our laws protect the most? Pregnant women and their children. That's, that's who is most valuable and in some ways most vulnerable. One thing that I believe this means for us politically is that to endorse the government sanctioned killing of children through abortion disqualifies someone from public office. Which may sound a little bit harsh, may sound like it's going too far, but, but follow the logic with me. Uh, now, now, let me tell you what I'm not saying first. I'm not saying if they're pro-life, vote for them if they're pro-choice, don't. I'm not saying single-issue voting. What I am saying is if they're willing to support government-funded or government-sanctioned abortion, we cannot vote for them then. It's a disqualifier. Let me ask you this. Let's pretend that your dream political candidate is running for president. I mean, you agree with them in every way. They have all the charisma that you have waited for in a presidential leader, living an upright and noble life, everything you've ever looked for in a president. And this person is running for office and you're ready to vote. And then you learn, and this is going to sound a little silly, but just stick with me on it. Then you learn, they announce, well, you know what? Bribery is not wrong. And I'm going to make it legal for all government officials to accept bribes in their position if I'm made president. Everything else is perfect, but on the bribery issue, they're off. They're going to make bribery legal. Can you vote for that person? No. Why not? Because bribery is a big deal and that disqualifies you from public office. We could say the same thing for several other disqualifying sins, couldn't we? And if we're willing to do that for issues like bribery or perhaps stealing, right? If your ideal candidate was right on every issue but said, no, I think stealing needs to be legal. He'd say, no, you you can't run for public office. We can't put you, we can't trust you in office if you think stealing should be legal. Here's the thing. More important than the issue of bribery or the issue of stealing is the killing of small children. And a political candidate who's willing to endorse that could not be morally qualified for office. And so for my heart, for my conscience, this is how I vote. This is probably the closest I'll ever come from telling you guys how I vote. Uh, I've never had a good and clear conscience about voting for someone that sanctioned either government-funded or fully legal abortion. I just couldn't do it on moral grounds that the person had to be disqualified from public office. So that's one way we can apply that there. Now, again, that doesn't mean you just vote straight down the ticket. If they're pro-life, you vote for them no matter what. If they're pro-choice, you don't no matter what. That just means we have to be serious about disqualifiers and that in some elections, we may find that we can't support either candidate. And we just have to back off and say, Lord, it is in your hands. We have done all that we could. So this is the third thing that we can do, protect pregnant women and children when the Lord gives us power through our vote and for very few of us. Through political office. Fourth and finally, what does the Lord call us to do in response? He calls us to help those who are in distress. And we see this very clearly in several scriptures. Let's look at the last one in your handout today, James 1.27, which says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Okay, so you see the two hands of that there. On one hand, we do have to keep ourselves unstained from the world, but that's not enough, right? We have to go visit those who are in affliction because of the hardships of the world. Uh, we see similar logic in Jeremiah 22.3, which is back on the first page. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood. The last word got taken off there. I'm not sure why. So again, two sides of it. We have to do justice and righteousness ourselves. And when we have opportunity to rescue someone who is oppressed, we must be faithful to go to them and rescue them as well. And finally, Proverbs 21, 23, which is also on the first page, says, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor... Will himself call out and not be answered. This is that cry that says, I'm powerless and someone is after me. I'm powerless and someone is hurting me. If we close our ears to that, the Lord says, I'm going to close my ears to your cries of distress as well. So the, the burden is on the people of God. We must go and we must help. So what should we do? Well, first, there are many men and women who I even mentioned earlier who are, who are grieving as a result of their own past. And the church must be the one to come with the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ to come alongside of them and comfort the grieving. Uh, many of these men and women now work for pro-life pregnancy choice centers and many of them are in ministry now because the Lord has changed their life and redeemed it for good and yet their hearts still grieved over what has happened in the past. And so we've got to come alongside them and and help them and be with them. That's one thing we can do. Uh, The soul trauma for one who has been part of an abortion in the past is often long-lasting. And rarely does it surface immediately. But when it does surface, may it be the church who is there, may it be Christians who are there to wrap our arms around them and say, God loves you and I love you, come here. May we be the ones who are faithful to do that. It just helps to have someone to talk to often. We're also called to help those who are in distress. And there are very practical ways that we can do that. I'll give you two ways that we can help with this very issue. Uh, The first, there are several crisis pregnancy centers that are around, a few in our area as well. Uh, If you want to be part of one, one that we know of is in Franklin. It's called CareNet. It's a national network of crisis pregnancy centers. Uh, One office right here in Franklin even. And what they do is very simply they serve and care for women who are pregnant and are scared. Pregnant and they're saying, I don't know what to do. The father is abusive. I don't know what to do. I don't even. My parents kicked me out of the house. I don't know what to do. Where can they run? Where can they flee? Who will help them? Places like CareNet help them. They get them all the stuff that they need. Uh, but those places need help. Uh, they need everything from people to sit at the front desk to donations to programmers to help their search engine optimization. So when a woman is pregnant and doesn't know what to do and she Googles, what do I do? that they come up to the top so that they go to them. They need all kinds of help. We've got their phone number on file if you ever want to get involved. I pray the Lord will raise up some of us to be involved in places like that. And we have a few other places we can point you to as well. A very different way that we can help is to care for orphans in their distress through both adoption and foster care. Uh, Some of you guys know my my lawyer friend Josh, who has preached here in this pulpit before. He did some research in on this, and he found that there are about 13,000 churches in the state of Indiana. And you want to guess about how many kids are in the foster system in the state of Indiana? About 13,000. Almost exactly the same. It means if every church in the state of Indiana, if just one couple took one child and said, I'm willing to adopt this child, foster system would have no children to care for for a while. If the church would rise up and say, you know what, my wife and I are empty nesters now and this is a better way to spend our life. We'll, We'll adopt a child. Who is in need. If the the church would rise up together and say, you know what, this child is is currently bouncing around from home to home, but here are three homes in our church that can handle that. They can bounce around between the three of our homes for a while. If we would reach our arms out to them, oh, how much of a difference we could make. Isn't it just funny that the number is almost, I feel like that's a call from God, like church, rise up and handle this for those who are in need. So there are two great ways that we can be a heart of this cause, helping crisis pregnancy centers that reach out to women when they are in need and contributing with adoption and foster care when children are in need as well. Those kind of scriptures that I read earlier from James, Jeremiah, and Proverbs, those scriptures have inspired the church for 2,000 years now. In first century Rome, it was common for a child to be born and the mother and father to examine the child and see if it was a boy or a girl. If it was a boy, they'd rejoice that an heir was born to the house. And if it was a girl, they would literally throw it aside, uh, oftentimes uh, setting it right into the trash or just throwing it out onto the street. It was commonplace because they wanted male children and heirs in that day. Well, in the first century, you know who it was who was digging through trash cans and going out in the street and finding children and caring for them as their own. It was Christians. It was the church who was going out and doing that. Inspired by words like James 1.27, religion that's pure and undefiled is to visit widows and orphans in their distress. Uh, and, and Jeremiah 22 and Proverbs as well. Centuries later, When much of the world had fallen into national sins together of of race-based man-stealing and and slavery, Uh, two of the leading nations in this were the United Kingdom and the United States, Uh, and many people actually turned from being part of the slave trade to Jesus Christ as Lord and they began fighting for the freedom of the very people that they had kidnapped before. One of these people is John Newton, who's the author of Amazing Grace. Another is William Wilberforce. Both of them involved turning from it and coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I will do whatever. Through the work of these Christians and many people who were not Christians as well, slavery was made illegal in the United States, illegal in the United Kingdom. And those two nations have influenced much of the world to make slavery illegal as well. Much of this started with the good work of ordinary Christians who were just willing to get their hands dirty and help. Here we are in the year 2022, and I think we can say with, uh, in, in a more serious way than we ever said before, we don't know what the year is going to bring, right? We never know what's going to happen in the future now. But if the church would rise up, care for those in distress. I wonder if in 500 years some preacher is going to say these are the texts that inspired Christians in the 21st century to care for widows and orphans. Oh, may that be said of us. And may the Lord even use his word to move ordinary Christians like you and me to make the difference and save the lives of many. Let's pray together and let's ask the Lord to help us with this.